Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 12th, 2022. I'm John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Uh, we are two months away from the Commentary Magazine roast of Barry Weiss, and we are excited today, actually, to have one of the people who is going to roast Barry on the podcast more a little later uh, but the, to, to attend the Barry Weiss roast, go to commentary.org slash roast. That is the, uh, URL that will get you to the goodies that will explain to you how to come. It's an expensive ticket. Uh, it's our major fundraiser. Uh, we are very proud of it. People love this evening every year. It's our 12th or our 13th or our 11th. I can never remember which I'm going to have to go back and count at some point. Uh, Barry, obviously a person uh, worthy of celebration and being taken down a couple of pegs. So that's what we're going to do on November 13th, Sunday night here in New York, commentary.org slash roast. I'm also going to make a quick announcement that we still are having problems with Apple and with our uh, iTunes feed and uh, if you hear this and you have friends who are complaining they can't hear the podcast, tell them they can go to soundcloud.com and search Commentary Magazine, or they can go to our website, commentary.org, to listen. We are probably going to be fixing this uh, tonight, tomorrow, by going to a new platform to feed iTunes. And I don't even know what that means if you don't know what that means, but uh, it's enough already with this trouble of getting our people uh to getting you our podcasts and we're gonna fix it so with that let me introduce of course uh, with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john media commentary columnist and aei fellow christine rosen hi christine hi john associate editor and author of the rise of the new puritans noah rothman hi john hi noah sorry <laughs> and joining us today as promised uh, future Barry Weiss roastee, columnist with uh, columnist and podcaster with uh, tablet and all around uh, Renaissance man, Liel Leibovitz. Hi, Liel. Boker Tov, John. Boker Tov. Uh, Liel has written an extraordinary piece at tabletmag.com about uh, the infamy of the New York Times and the way it has written about. Uh, yeshivas in New York uh, State. But before we get to that, uh, his piece and the Times piece and why uh, we're so upset about the Times piece and uh, not upset about Liel's piece, I think we need to talk about the events uh, this weekend in Ukraine, uh, which, Noah, you know, on Friday you said something like, well, I mean, let's not talk about how they might take a lot of territory now. You know, let's let's keep our powder dry because this is going to be a long slog. And and then, I mean, or it's something something to that effect. But what I said specifically, because I remember, yes. is that there was unconfirmed reports from Russian military bloggers, not the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, Russian military bloggers to the effect of that this um, advance north in the in the uh Kharkiv Oblast, which borders the Luhansk Oblast and the Donetsk Oblast, um, that there had been this big advance, but they had taken this southern shift uh, uh, down uh, on the banks of the Oskar River 
moving down towards to meet up with another Ukrainian advance. And the assumption on my part was that they're going to encircle the city of Izium, where there were untold Russian battle groups, uh, and surround them and lay siege to it, essentially, you know, and try to try to force them to break out or negotiate a surrender. That's typically how that works. And uh, just there was no no defense mounted, simply melted away. Right. Izium fell. No, I don't know anybody who expected that. Any right, close observer exactly. of this conflict, it would expect exactly. the Russian forces to put, to announce. This isn't like something that we had to discern. Uh, key, uh, uh, the Kremlin announced that they were pulling back to uh, Luhansk Oblast, where there have been continued offensives. Now, this is not to say that the Kyrgyzstan offensive, which is in the south, is something of a feint, which I thought, OK, that must be a feint. All these, you know, attacks in the, on um, Crimea soften up this uh, the infrastructure around there. That, that, that must have been a feint. No. That's a real offensive, too. That's slow, deliberate and gaining ground, albeit a game of inches. Seems that there was just an opportunity here with some softness in the Kharkiv oblast and Ukrainian forces took maximum advantage of it. Okay, so so the point is that as late as Friday, where we are this Monday morning with the Ukrainians having gained a thousand square miles of Ukrainian territory once controlled by Russia. Um, it was totally unpredicted and unpredictable. Uh, and uh, yet it has about it the scent as, as even the mainstream media who have been very cautious about reporting on this stuff, I would say, you know, sort of, enthusiastically except about the spirit of the ukrainians uh are saying you know russia's stunned um russia's made uh, you know this is a stunning turn i think stunning is actually the word used on the new york times's homepage this morning um and we what we're looking at here is it's not like okay try to come and get us and take over a nation of 44 million people we'll tie you up for a decade it is we're pushing you out we are taking we are now taking measures to push you out of our country um it's a completely different war strategy from the one that people thought they were fighting uh it seems that it's possible that this has been sort of like in the works for a month and that you know they saw an opportunity and they took it we don't know you know to what extent american military planning is helping them see things from the air that they wouldn't otherwise see. Um, but the Russian military's uh, disintegration uh, is apparently very real. Um, and so you have this, on the one hand, Ukrainian military competence, which goes far beyond what people expected, and Russian military incompetence, and now a possible complete degradation of Russian military spirit, all happening at once. So... It's just a jaw-dropping state of affairs, and it shows once again that um, people are loudmouths about things they don't don't know about, like Tucker Carlson, who told us a month ago that Putin was winning the war. You know, There's still also, some. I just want to add: we also, our friends at the Institute for the Study of War, have also pointed out that after this recent counteroffensive by the Ukrainians, it that's also revealed real struggles between Putin and his Ministry of Defense. So there's a lot of conflict within oh. Russia about strategy, about and, and a likely, you know, heads will roll sort of sense. 
at least from our friends at the Institute for the Study of War, they, that they said that this reveals just how disconnected Putin is from his own military in terms of strategy. Russian uh, cable news, which uh, is actually a little livelier than our cable news and far more partisan and aggressive, is, is alive with, you know, real a real sense of betrayal on the part of the, the Kremlin analysts who soft sold what the challenge was going to be here. And there's everybody expectation that Ru- Russia still has cards to play. They can mount their own counteroffensive and likely will. But the response that we've seen so far has been kind of incohate, just lobbing um, uh, cruise missiles and uh, air launch cruise missiles at civilian targets, at infrastructure targets in Kharkiv. They're just taking the power and the lights out. And maybe that's all they can do. Liel, um, I wanted to find this statement that um, Zelensky made last night because it's really kind of startling um, uh, in its evocation of um, Bono, among other things. Um, <laughs> so he now was, you're just triggering me. I'm sorry, but here's what he said. Do you, to, this is Zelensky speaking to Russia or to Putin. Do you still think we are one people? Do you still think you can scare us, break us, force us to make concessions? Don't you really get it? Don't you understand who we are, what we stand for, what we are all about? Read my lips. Without gas or without you, without you, without light or without you, without you. By the way, I could say not Bono, but um, Alan J. Lerner, because there is a song called Without You in... um, my fair lady so if you don't like if you don't like your irish you know holier than now people you can like my fair lady um harry without Nelson. water or without you without you without food or without you without you cold hunger darkness and thirst are not as frightening and deadly for us as your friendship and brotherhood but history will put everything in its place and we will be with gaslight water and food and without you Kind of in in Kharkiv, where the streets have no name. <laughs> okay, we can keep going with this, of course. Yes, we can. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Ruth Weiss wrote a piece for us uh, in May of uh, 2022 called uh, Zelensky is Jewish Hero. Um, and this does have a certain, um, I don't know, what would you call it? Sort of like... Uh, Israeli pioneer quality, uh, uh, sort of, sort of Begin-esque, you know, Menachem Begin-like yeah. thrust, if you will. You know, I am not a Ukrainian with with trembling knees, to paraphrase what uh, Begin said to Joe Biden yeah. when Biden threatened to cut aid if Israel bombs the uh, Iraqi nuclear reactor. <clears throat> Look, uh, it, allow me uh, for one second uh, to play the 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 you know real role that that I, I think I was brought here this morning to play, which uh, of the sort of kind of uh, all around bummer uh, and suggested any time that I read the word stunning uh, in the New York Times, I'm immediately inclined to think that something's afoot because usually it's, you know, reserved for like the model daughter of the vice president and things like that. Uh, and so and so I'm very, very cautious here. The question that I want to ask, and I want to raise it in in humility and ignorance um, rather than in some kind of uh, conspiratorial uh, soothsaying voice is uh, what do we really believe uh, Putin's objectives here were? From the very outset, uh, they were, you know, kind of like deeply murky. There is a universe uh, in which everything that he set out to achieve has been achieved. This is not to say that he has not been, you know, blindsided by his own generals. This is not to say 
that the Kremlin hasn't mishandled some of these things. But there is a universe, I think, and I'm really curious to hear your opinion in which he said, look, I, I basically did this uh, to test uh, all the players around me to remind the Europeans how deeply they were dependent on uh, my you know, connections to energy. Uh, to see if the Americans would do anything, which of course they didn't, uh, to see what kind of weapons would go into my uh, my adversaries. And the answer is very limited. Uh, and here I am. I, I simply don't need this anymore because, you know, was I ever really interested in taking over the entirety of Ukraine? Sure, if it happened to have fallen, but if it didn't, that's not really a big deal either. Oh, I think I that's a my very, now? very charitable analysis of what the Kremlin's objectives were. This is a full-scale invasion. It was preceded by this very forthright, albeit meandering and, and somewhat psychotic, speech about Russia's historical claims on Ukraine, uh, dating back to the Crimean War, dating back to the conquest of the Black Sea coast from the Ottomans. I mean, this is the stuff he cited as casus belli. Um, it was subsequently uh, followed up with a total war invasion on three separate fronts, two of which have subsequently dissolved over the course of the last several months, and one of which is in the course of dissolving now. Um, but you can't say that there wasn't any intentionality behind that or that it was just to test the waters. Um, if this wasn't designed to test NATO's resolve to shore up its frontier, that test has been rather definitively concluded with the affirmative answer. Yes, the answer is yes, as far as advanced weapon systems, retaliatory radar systems, these HIMARS, which are a, a really advanced ro multiple rocket launch systems. That's the sort of thing I don't think Moscow thought they would commit to this fight because, you know, we've been hemming and hawing over fixed wing aircraft, you know, negotiating with ourselves over what's escalatory, what's not escalatory, and Russia subsequently adopts whatever the consensus opinion is, only to, to backtrack from our own consensus and then send the weapons that we said were going to be escalatory in the first place. Um, I think Russia's objective here was to break Ukraine's national identity, carve up the country insofar as it was possible, and sow the seeds of dissension within NATO, all three of which have failed. Okay, I Can think... I be a, 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 Go ahead. A, a bummer in a slightly different way from Liel? Sure. Um, I, am, I am heartened by, by these developments um, tremendously. I'm very happy about it. Um, at the same time, I'm concerned, and this, is, this has been sort of my mantra throughout, um, what are, what what possibility is there here that uh, Putin, feeling defeated, feeling cornered, sort of unleashes something particularly awful? Now, I I, I I say this also with humility because I've had this concern before, and it seems that there there would have been times up until this point that he would have done this something like that uh, that he hasn't done, which leads me to believe that he there is no something awful for him to to unleash. Um, but part of me still cannot accept the idea that he can accept being genuinely humiliated here. OK, so not, briefly, John, answer, not to hold on, no, no, hold on, no, let me just get in here for a second. The. Um, to answer Liel's point and Abe's point, we have to look at this and say, in the history of war, people go to war uh, often, or leaders go to war with a misunderstanding of what the actual order of battle and the range of forces and the possibility of success are. It's one of the <clears throat> one of the stories of war that um, wars are often the result of terrible miscalculations. 
maybe always the result of a terrible miscalculation unless the war is a sort of the kind of thing where someone just storms in and the the where wherever where whatever territory they want to take over simply unless france is involved is what you're trying to say (laughs) okay touche um uh yeah so um so the idea that putin uh had this idea that he was going to make the show he was going to move into ukraine ukraine was going to collapse that was his strategy his strategy was ukraine is going to collapse why did he believe Ukraine was going to collapse? Is it because he believed his own bullshit about how there is no Ukraine and it's all Russia and the whole thing is a paper tiger and da 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 da? Probably. I mean, it, you know, it's the kind of thing where you 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 start with this, uh, you get these intellectuals to start preaching this mystical doctrine about uh, you know his, Russia's historical connections and binds and ties to the to the salt to the to the earth and the ground and how. Russian civilization actually began in Ukraine, so therefore it's you know fundamentally Russian. And there's this thing called Novorossiya, and Novorossiya is the reconstitution post-Soviet Union of an empire that is you know the mystic cords of of Russian uh, memory. And uh, it starts out as you know crapola and stupid little magazines, and then it turns into you know turns into something that 10 or 12 years later leads the leader of the country in a terrible, terrible mistake to say, well, because of this theory that we've all started uh, postulating about about these civilizations, uh, I'm going to declare war, go in, and they're just going to they're just going to fold like, you know, like a like I was going to say they fold like a house of cards or a paper tiger, but I, that's not. These are terrible mixed omelet, metaphors. old army cart, cot, right? Yeah, a whole lot of other. So, so in that sense, like, so this is a classic military blunder. Like, you go in because you think it's a cakewalk, and it's the opposite of a cakewalk, and uh, and then it turns out that um, not only is is your rival not going to fold, but your rival has a pretty solid understanding of his own terrain, his own territory, and has been training, it turns out, for years when you weren't paying attention to do exactly what it is that he is doing, which is to prevent you from taking over his country. Um, so in that sense, I think, in Abe, the other thing, and this is where this, the talk about uh, divisions and and alar- alarm uh, in in the Ministry of Defense and mill bloggers and and kind of actually sort of pan Slavic or you know Russian imperial hopefuls who blog and are nationalists and all of that is uh, they're they're think they're they're blaming Putin they're starting to blame Putin and uh, will that hinder his ability to you know do something really terrible i mean first of all he's already done something really terrible this weekend right he launched these missiles at at uh the cities and these oblasts and and plunged them into dark destroyed their electrical grids so he's like you know i'm we're gonna make you suffer which is why Zelensky gave that speech saying we don't need water we don't need power we don't need gas we'll get along without you um so i I think those are the yeah. Briefly to Abe's to the, the looming fear of the threat of what I think you're articulating, which is unconventional weapons. Uh, and I don't think you can dismiss that. 
because while they lack any tactical or strategic, well, strategic, they have strategic value. They lack almost all tactical tactical value. Um, but nevertheless, these retaliatory responses on st strikes on civilian infrastructure in Kharkiv suggest a willingness to do something really stupid uh, out of a fit of pique. Uh, I don't think you can write that entirely off, especially if Russia convinces itself that it can't achieve its tactical objectives in Ukraine. But I don't think they've convinced themselves of that yet. Because to do so, again, these weapons don't have a lot of tactical advantage. Why didn't the siege of the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear facility, right? That was its big, largest nuclear plant in Europe. It was basically held hostage by Russian forces. And it was the scene of some fighting, which was really terrifying. We got some observers in there, and they eventually shut the place down. But why didn't Russia just level it, you know? Why, that, that would have created an absolute humanitarian crisis, nightmare, radioactivity all over the place, right? But it drifts back into Russia, makes the area worthless, and the prevailing winds drift back in Russia's direction. So there's, I mean, the 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 escalatory move here that has the least um the least menace to the Kremlin's perspective, I think, is mass mobilization. And they haven't gone that far. They can't pull the trigger on on drafting up the citizenry to shore up all these the people that they're losing in Ukraine. So I mean, if that's if there's an escalatory step, that seems to me to be the first one available, and they can't even do that. I just don't even think that's that's a that's a proper escalatory step here. I mean, as I said on Friday, the thing that we I don't I don't think Noah you do this or anything, but that but that there is a perceptual gap here. Russia is not that big a country. It's a country of 144 million people. Now that's a lot of people, but Ukraine's a country of 45 million people in which basically everybody is now mobilized. I mean, granted, you know, women and children and, you know, the elderly or children and the elderly are not mobilized, but everybody else is effectively now some kind of a citizen soldier. No, I, I have a question. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. How, how do you see this ending? What's what's sort of what's the scenario that leads us to some kind of resolution and the declaration of cessation of fighting here? I have absolutely no idea. I don't think anybody can answer that question, honestly. None of us knew that this was the trajectory the war would take in February, much less May, June. Uh, all of this is unpredictable. I don't think we have any idea of what the stable equilibrium is on the battlefield because the, the lines of, uh, of control keep moving until we reach something akin to like a stable, a stable environment where you can actually carve out a ceasefire and everybody's happy. But right now, everybody sees their objectives as attainable. So they're going to. But fighting. by the way, by the way, all of the, those questions are unanswerable because they now now just like battlefield conditions change and they change. Uh, there is now the Ukrainians now have a better claim on or have a better argument to make about getting uh, more um, precision missiles, precision weapons, uh, because they're because they've had such success. And it's the middle of September and the winter begins in earnest in December. And then the question is, if they are, if they're striking now and they're moving, is there a way to uh, enhance their ability to do this and to keep the Russians on their heels, knock them back on their heels, force them to retreat? And then the Ukrainians are in a vastly better position, you know, strategically or on the battlefield for the point at which basically everybody is going to start digging in for the winter. Uh, also, uh, their success means that this Western, a lot of certain types of Western hesitancy uh, 
are going to start evaporating in the face of possibly irrational exuberance about Ukrainian victory. But it means there'll be a lot more aid. There'll be a lot more food. Uh, the the Europeans are going to continue to press Russia on on gas. Russia thinks it's pressing the Europeans on gas, and the Europeans think they're press, pressing Russia on gas. So we just don't know. But I mean, in the end, uh, this ends... I, I don't know how this ends without a Russian humiliation. One, one, it could be a minor humiliation or a major humiliation, but it's going to be a Russian humiliation unless they can, it's now been six and a half months. Uh, and uh, they, they've got almost nothing to show for well, what the they've conventional done. foreign policy graybeard approach to this, which I lent voice to early in the days of this war and the pages of commentary was that they need some sort of a face saving off ramp in order to say, yeah, we got what we came to get and uh, we can work out some sort of a peace fire or a ceasefire rather. But Ukraine's not going to take that. Ukraine right now is has every reason to believe that they can not only retake the territory that they lost since February 24, but maybe get back the Donbass, maybe carve a little few pieces of Crimea off and, and reintegrate that. They really genuinely believe that. And I have a lot of reason to believe that's not only feasible, but entirely envisionable in the next couple of months before the winter at the speed of this present advance. So yeah, there, there won't be any there's no room to negotiate right now because Russia's losing so badly. <laughs> let's 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 actually take an example from Israel and the Arabs and the Arab states in the in the three wars fought against the Arab states, right? So we have one war in, in which the you know uh, the six day war in which Israel just totally humiliated and you know and and. Uh, embarrassed and destroyed much of the Arab state's sense of their own military power. And then six years later, you had the you had the Yom Kippur War, which went a lot harder. Um, in both of those cases, the question was, what would Israel, what would Israel do, right, to, to clearly some form of settlement was going to have to be reached because the uh, world would end and that that was not the understanding of the way Israel, you know, Israel was fighting an existential struggle for its very existence, and uh, it couldn't negotiate away its own ex existence. Um, uh, so in that sense, I don't know what, you know, I mean, if the Ukrainian spirit isn't broken, Ukraine doesn't surrender. I mean, I don't know, maybe there'll be a mass starvation event. Maybe, you know, maybe uh, the leaders of Ukraine will be assassinated and everybody, I mean, who knows? You know, anything can happen. That's the point. But, but how, we've how... seen so many ex efforts to demoralize the Ukrainian population through atrocity. And this had the precise opposite effect. Anyway, I think it's a uh, it, it's an amazing uh, tur turn of affairs. And yeah, but I mean, it look, if Putin decides he wants to use, you know, uh, low range or, you know, uh, uh, suitcase nukes or, you know, new, you know, battlefield nukes or something like that. Um, I don't actually understand what happens. I mean, that's because on the one hand, he does that in a mood of absolute desperation. And then the entire planet says, 
we're, we have to like send it. We have to send we have to send like shock troops into the Kremlin to seize him and arrest him and put him up before the Hague. Like, yeah, that's really scary. And I, I mean, that, that is the that only is, one yeah. who is now really bummed because all of the 80s action movies that I grew up in seem kind of lame. It's like, oh, no, the Russians. Why, why would I ever be afraid of those guys? Like every James Bond movie is ridiculous now. It's it's it, I mean, this is the thing, like. If Putin didn't doesn't know the condition of his own military, I mean, OK, so again, I want to go back to Israel just for the hell of it, because this is, you know, an obsession. But Michael Oren's book, Six Days of War, begins with this fantastic scene, which is this meeting of uh, Arab military leaders and uh, they convening together to discuss, you know, how they're going to attack Israel. And they each make an announcement of how they're sending 50,000 men and they're sending 20,000 guns and they're doing this and they're doing that. And then they leave the meeting and everybody goes on vacation. And then the war starts and the entire, you know, and and this entire alliance, it was all hollow. Like no one was committing anything. No one was doing anything. No one was actually prepared to do anything. And it is like Putin got high in his own supply. Now, let me let me let me riff. I, look, we're yeah. half an hour into this conversation and yeah. I feel strongly that I have not uh, been, you know, loony enough. So let me kind of correct this right now. I actually really love this example of of Israel and you know the Arab wars, uh, because the thing that I think we've seen there is that the Arab countries were very happy uh, and resolved to basically see themselves as client states, right? So my question is in some weird way, let's assume that Ukraine gives up nothing in, in, a, in a future peace settlement. And as Noah said, in fact, carves out all kinds of little beat, bits of territory and, and, and pieces of land and declares this a, a massive victory. Uh, and let's assume that uh, some real world power, I don't know, maybe Beijing, um, steps in and negotiates all sorts of agreements uh, that are really very beneficial to it in terms of, I don't know, maybe access to European power, gas, etc. Uh, and that Putin, as his consolation prize, receives a check for Lord knows uh, how much. And let's not assume uh, ideology. Let's assume kleptocracy. Uh, and therefore, it's a really peaceful uh, resolution in the, in the Pax China. Um, I just don't know what possible, I mean, this is going to be seen as a NATO victory, right? So it's a NATO victory. And though NATO is not organized to fight against China, and and what we've had here is a revivification of NATO because of the Russian threat, um, I don't see how, how Beijing just sort of lands in the middle of everything and, and you know, takes this benefit that you're expressing i mean the real question is what happens to putin like who cuts right. that check why is anybody dealing with putin at that point he is just you know he is just he launched a he launched a pointless humiliating war on the european continent and you know re as i said revivified the alliance against him and was crushed in this future scenario and was crushed into defeat by this pipsqueak country that he thought was nothing and that was just basically a vet should be a vassal state of his. I mean, I don't know how he survives. I don't know how he doesn't put a bullet in his head or somebody hmm. doesn't go and put a bullet in his head. I mean, you know, he's been in power for 23 years. 
He's in his seventies. Like, you know, he just, he, he made this generational his, you know, world historical mistake under those circumstances and no one's saving his bacon. Yeah. That's and how I Russia's would. trading balance is with Europe. Russia's market is in Europe. 40% yeah. of its trade is with Europe. 40% of its imports come from Europe, something along those lines. It can't just reorient all its economy to the, to East Asia overnight. Uh, it's, it would be, massively disruptive and would probably destroy the Russian economy. But yeah, just, just as John said, there's nobody coming up behind Vladimir Putin. This whole structure is atrophied to the point where it's just, it's Putin's game and there, there is nobody to replace it. Gonna, Shoigu, who's going to come up behind him? I don't know, but Prince, anyone, Prince any, anyone, anyone can come up behind somebody <laughs> in a circumstance like if one thing that history tells us is, you know, somebody takes out Macbeth you know, when he's being Macbeth, you know, whatever. It's like, you, you just, I know that's not history. I understand. I'm being metaphorical here. But um, there, there's no, there's no face saving for Putin. Like the worry that Putin needed to have his, had have his face saved was a worry that involved uh, him having some strength to argue, except you know, now it's just entropic. It's like, well, he's Russia. So we, if we can get this to stop, we should get it to stop. And maybe we can do something nice. I mean, he's in this incredible pit. The minute that he sues for peace, I assume he's done. He's done for. He is the motive actor here. It's not like he had some, you know, forces inside Russia were compelling him to stage this war, which had no strategic or tactical basis whatsoever it was more like i think america looks like it's finished it pulled out of afghanistan and you know uh this you know the, this country is vexing me it's been vexing me it vexes me and you know i'm i'm gonna take it now because no one's gonna stop me and I mean, he could a, yeah. he, he could withdraw and say we've i've done what i wanted to do we've done what we wanted to do this is this is this is good uh, you know, I didn't want to do all the scary things that everyone said I wanted to do. I uh, suppose. But, yeah. you know, if you're it, the thing that Trump always responded to in Putin was right. The strength argument was strength. He's strength. Look at him. He's strength, strong. And that obviously is Putin's own fetish about himself. And that would be a, you know, I showed them who I showed them a thing or two. Right. You know, is really not not sufficient. But listen, right. let me stop for a minute and talk to you guys about our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group. David has been preaching, as I said, for now a year and a half, the idea that while we may be in an immediately inflationary moment, we are in a long-term deflationary moment, that we are heading the way of, of Japan. And, um, and, you know, uh, if you followed his advice over the course of the last year, uh, you wouldn't have done so you would have done pretty well. That's why he's got $4 billion under management at the Bonson Group. As he says, look, the S&P is down 20%. The NASDAQ is down 30%. The Fed is raising rates. The economy is either in or on the verge of recession. So the Bonson Group has moved to a position in which it is using dividend growth to protect client capital. And that achieves far better results than those buying the fads of the day or blindly indexing away. So look, if you are... Bitcoining, if you are, you know, if you have surrendered to the Bitcoin cult or the or the uh, or the ESG cult, if you are avoiding vital energy investments that you would actually make you a lot of money, 
I think you should go and hear how the Bonson Group's portfolio management is up on the year despite the tough times in markets. That's the Bonson Group. That's David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-A-N. Go to Bonson.com for more information on a good place to park your money, to make it grow over the long term with somebody who has not only proven results, but has proven that he has the intellectual understanding to help lead you and your capital into a very uncertain future. Uh, I also need to talk to you about our friends at Bambi. Uh, Bambi, of course, uh, you've been hearing about Bambi from us for a long time. This is the uh, this is a company that is going to provide you with a dedicated HR manager for pennies of what you would spend on an HR manager who was on your staff and in place. HR managers cost 80 grand a year. Bambi costs you 99 a month or its plans start at just $99 a month. Um, you know, when you're running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. Somebody isn't showing up when they're supposed to. You want to talk to Bambi. An employee reports a serious issue like sexual harassment, and you're not sure if you have a document and policy, Bambi will help you provide one off the rack. You can get dedicated access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month, available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboardings and terminations run smoothly, team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Remember, that's $99 a month as opposed to 80 grand a year. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help our show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com, Bambi.com. Type in Commentary Magazine. Okay, Liel, the New York Times, following up on years of um, slanderous <laughs> coverage of these questions in, I'm sorry to say, the, uh, the, the Jewish press, as we understand it, the New York Jewish Week and the Forward and other places, has now unleashed uh, its own form of hell. On unleashed the Kraken. Unleash the Kraken, its own Kraken, on New York City and New York State's Hasidic yeshivot. Um, these are religious schools, private schools, in which there are about 100,000 kids, all, all in all, uh, 50,000 boys, 50,000 girls in different schools. Um, but they are focusing on the 50,000 boys in, in uh, Hasidic yeshivas, in New York State, um, and what they are saying is that the results on standardized testing uh, shown by these schools and these students are terrible, and that these kids are being taught solely a religious education, whereas their accreditation requires them to have a secular education that prepares them for American citizenship, full fluency in English, math, other stuff, and that they score terribly on this. And yet, at the same time, they are taking hundreds of millions of dollars a year in public aid uh, for this schooling. Um, this is a very serious issue. It's I, I, I don't want to make light of the question of whether or not 
some of these communities are either exploiting their own political power on the one hand or are not are doing wrong by their students by not teaching them rudimentary and elementary English and math and stuff like that. Although how you live in America and don't speak English, which is one of the claims that is being made by these by this article, is absolutely preposterous. Nobody speaks Yiddish as a first language, even in Muncie. Uh, that is that is actually not. I mean. There, nobody speaks Yiddish as a first language. And even if they did, remember, remember the time that when the New York Times said to uh, Hispanic Americans, "Hey, speak English, Latinos." Remember, yeah. remember when that happened? <laughs> right. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, Liel, so th- this piece, we we can break down many aspects of it. It's like thousands of words long, and they're yes. now, as Christine points out, they are now doing the follow-ups. Right. So this morning, this piece was yesterday. This morning, it's already like, oh, there's gonna, oh. There's now a lot of pressure on state lawmakers to intervene and do what we're ordering you to do in the story we did on Sunday and go at the jugular of these schools. So please, so how how, how, do even, how do you even approach this? First of all, look, I'm I'm very proud. I have to say, I wrote my counterpiece before reading the New York Times article. Uh, kind of, you know, uh, I feel like thing. you may have stimulated their publication of it. Basically saying, saying like, like look, your piece came out when your piece well, came out Friday. My piece came out Thursday and, and it piece begins came out by Thursday. Saying, the piece was published Saturday on the website. Go ahead. I, my piece begins by saying one of the convenient features of the gray lady these days is you don't even have to read the publication to know what they're going to say. Uh, it was even worse than I expected. Look, there, there, there are various ways of, of attacking this, this story. You could kind of go at the very entry level and say, Hey, you know, if uh, you're going to do something about the Hasidic community, maybe start with uh, examining why so many of them get physically attacked by their neighbors and why to date, as Tablet Magazine has reported, there's been but one person spending more than one night in jail for these attacks. But let's let's leave all that behind. Let's also leave behind the fact that the claim uh, that you get absolutely nothing of any substance from from a traditional religious education uh, is absolutely preposterous. If you bother studying some Talmud, which is my absolute pleasure as the host of a Dafyomi podcast to do, you understand that if you want to make your way through, say, Tractate Eruvin or Sukkot, where you have to, you know, measure what Dalit Amos means and, and how, you know, large the area of a certain kind of, uh, you know, Shabbat related zone uh, has to be, you absolutely have to have uh, some kind of knowledge of, you know, definitely history, definitely mathematics, definitely a lot of the other areas that the Times article preposterously argues, you know, Hasidic kids uh, get none of. Uh, Let's also uh, ignore, there's a lot of, you know, generosity flowing, as you can see from my heart this morning. Let's also ignore these absolutely, you know, idiotic claims as if the Hasidic community is doing something wrong by A, uh, exercising its democratic right to vote, or B, partaking of funds that are made available to their community. Are we really you know, accusing Americans for doing what the law says they could be doing? I don't think so. The point that I really want to make, uh, which I think is, is the point that we should focus on, is a much larger one. Uh, and it's urgent, and it's urgent for all of us, uh, Hasidic and non-Hasidic alike. And it's this, what is the purpose of education? What is it that you want a schooling to do for a child if it is just uh, having a very particular set of skills uh, that lead, say, to employment 
then we should probably go ahead and shut down old gender studies department as those have been you know, deeply non-conducive to finding any gainful jobs. Uh, but I think it should be something bigger. I think it should be about having citizens who are, who are happy, content, uh, and self-sustaining members of loving, tight-knit, productive communities. Uh, and under those metrics, I think Hasidic Jews are performing, according to every study I've ever seen, significantly better uh, than their fellow Americans who in record numbers are choosing A, not to have children, B, not to be members of any communities, C, to succumb to you know increasing rates of opioid and alcohol addictions. Uh, I think that there is a very good case to be made as I as I end you know the the piece, my piece saying, tongue only half in cheek, that if anything, we should have a, a committee of Hasidic rabbis investigating the public school systems to see why the moral failures of that system produces so many unhappy, broken, and yes, non-gainfully employed people. These 50,000 boys are the focus of this piece. So I, I, I just want to throw some numbers to you. These 50,000 boys who attend uh, Hasid, the Hasidic yeshivas that they're focusing on, by which what they're really talking about is Satmer, Hasidim, who are the by, by far the largest complement mm-hmm. and have uh, most of these schools that they're talking about are Satmer schools. But um, there are 50,000 boys that are the focus of this piece. New York State has 2.8 million children in its public schools. New York City, uh, which is not which has the lion's share of this 50,000, but in which there are a lot of kids in Duchess and uh, Rockland counties as well um, uh, in mid-state New York, sort of, you know, like within an hour, hour and a half of New York City. Um, uh, but so New York City has 1.1 million kids in public schools, state 2.7 million kids in public schools. And the schools spend, if you add them all together, about $60 billion a year in state and local spending and property taxes and all of that uh we and the article this the the public policy frame of the article is that these schools are not teaching the kids and yet the schools in aggregate get about 250 million dollars a year in aid state level aid now the piece does not specify what that means but i know a little bit about what that means because what it means is school buses, which uh, which in, in New York City and New York State are mandatory or schools are allowed to, you are allowed to use public monies to get kids to private schools as long as the distance from the school is a mile or a mile and a half or something like that. That's all private schooling, all parochial schooling. So there's a lot of that money is that. And then you have money for school lunches and pre-K care and all of that, all of which were mandated by the state. And you have a lot of Hasidic people who are below the poverty line, which is another issue in the piece. And so they get aid for people below the poverty line, however you want to define the poverty line in New York state. Mm -hmm. And that is not school related. That it, it's just that the money comes through the schools in the form of school lunches and 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 childcare and stuff like that. But it's not about schooling because that's all for kids who are three or four or two. And I know they want it, people want to fantasize that that's you know 
how you prepare kids for education, but but it really I, isn't. I, I understand. Uh, I understand this this issue very well. Uh, I, I will say a few things. First of all, it would sound much better if it wasn't coming uh, from an educational system that just received over the last two years fourteen billion dollars uh, from two federal stimulus packages and delivered, according to a recent survey, less than half of the instruction the state requires per year, while cities like, I don't know, Houston or Miami, uh, what, do, what do these two uh, states have in common, uh, delivered far, far, far better on far, far, far lesser aid. That's the first point. The second point is like, if you want to change the laws, that's perfectly fine. Uh, you could go ahead and say, yes, we are now tweaking everything and specifying how this aid needs to go. But to come out and suggest that there is something really nefarious about people using this money in certain ways and, and you know, kind of like looping on loopholes and also the language, of course, that the Times use, like they're flush with cash, those money grubbing heaps who just, you know, took our shekels away. It's just ridiculous. You want to change the laws, go ahead and change the laws. But then I have to stop and ask, why uh, is the state doing several things? If we're, if, we're, if you're in the legalistic mindset, which, you know, being a, the Talmudic scholar you are, you frequently are, John, uh, I'll ask two questions. First of all, it strikes me as preposterous that the state and the Board of Regents is set to uh, decide on this this week, which is why the Times, I suspect, truly published on Sunday. Uh, I would like to think that my piece had something to do with it, but I think it's it's the political wheeling and dealing. The Board of Regents isn't about to demand outcomes. What the Board of Regents preposterously is about to demand is equivalency. They're going to say, we want the same numbers of stupid classes that aren't working for our kids in the public schools also thrust upon your kids. They're not asking, we want to get you all to a point where you actually know something. They just want to say, we cross the T's and dot the I's. Now, the question is why? And and here, there is literally, I think, no way of seeing this as anything other than, than a blatant and brutal assault on religious liberties. They're telling a religious community, and they're picking on the weakest and most insulated and isolated one that doesn't even have the support of its co-religionists in, in the larger non-Hasidic you know, community. Hey, you know, we know you're not going to fight this back. We're going to step in and show you that the state could come in and tell you what you can and cannot teach your children. And that, to me, is uh, profoundly un-American. Well, and this this is actually this is such an important part of this because the what they seem to attempt to do in this story and and failed is a, is exactly what you're saying, Leal. Attack a faith faith practices, a culture of faith, by claiming they're worried about outcomes and worried about education. So when you look, so let, let's see if they did that. If let's look at another group that that underperforms educationally, African Americans in low in in sort of high poverty, uh, low socioeconomic uh, situations. When that happens, look at what the explanation is from cultural institutions like the New York Times. It's structural racism. It's you know, it's poverty. It's this. It's that. It's anything but. A, the education they're receiving and the type of education they're receiving, the standards that these kids are not being held to, but which they could meet if they were given, you know, more structure in their lives. And all of the services that 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 are a complaint in this piece about religious schools in the Jewish faith are used as a an, an example of how more money needs to be spent on other communities. The 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 absolute hypocrisy of how these two groups of students are are treated in these in in by this just one newspaper is appalling. It just, it's appalling. You know and, that anti-Semitism is real when they're accusing Jews of not caring enough about education. Right. 
Well, and we need to talk about that. But Abe, you were going to. Well, just to add to Christine's point, and there's quite a different take on the validity of standardized testing uh, when, when they talk about uh, both both cases. Right. Right. Yeah. Because this piece <laughs> leads off with kids with a thousand kids in these schools doing really badly on standardized tests. Right. OK. Here's another point. These are private schools, meaning assuming that every parent of these kids, at least one parent is has attained their majority. This is a matter of citizens making a free choice to send their children to a private institution. Yep. If the schooling is bad and they don't like the schooling, any in a second, they can pull their kids out of the school and send them to the public school. The piece then tries to create the psychological model of an insular community that forces its residents, many of whom are poor, to spend thousands of dollars per child getting their children an education, a private education. This is a deliberate and conscious choice by people. Why? Because they actively do not want to send their children to public schools. Why? Because their faith tradition says that it is more important that they be instructed in the tenets and practices of their religion, the most intellectually um, complex and intellectually detailed religion the world has ever seen, uh, in which they would they study the, the, the tracts of the Talmud, which are fiendishly difficult to study and in which you are establishing an almost insanely high bar for elementary knowledge if your source material is the Talmud. Just try and... Uh, Liel cited his own podcast Dafi, about Dafyomi. Dafyomi is the seven-year cycle in which you study a page a day of Talmud. It takes, what, seven and a half years to get through the entire Talmud, and that's that stuff. You and look, right? and, and and I have a PhD from an Ivy League university. It takes me about three hours a day to master this. But but I, I want to kind of riff on, on that yeah. point, John, because it seems so deeply important to me. You know, I, I learned a long time ago, and I kind of learned the hard way because I didn't want to believe this was true. But that the most kind of important or resonant concept in contemporary American politics truly is this Freudian notion of projection. Um, Let's see what these people are saying here. Uh, you are an insular cult that doesn't want to believe anything but the tenets of your faith. You pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to send your children to academic institutions that do nothing but brainwash them in the very particular worldview that they need to then be able to thrive in a community that doesn't accept any other way of seeing the world. That to me sounds a lot like every single person I've ever met at Columbia University. That is the Upper West Side of Manhattan. That is not Borough Park. I mean, so, I, this okay. is yeah. Go ahead. This is this is such an important point because I think something that's somewhat missing from this discussion here is that liberal institutions have it out for Hasidim because they are not getting with the program, right? They don't they 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 rejected the, the covid regime. They have it out for the, the institute. Liberal institutions have it out for for Yeshiva U because they don't accept a, a, a LGBTQ club on their campus. Um, so they represent a holdout 
an ideological holdout um, that cannot be tolerated. I mean, so the only real two, other yeah. they they are they are the other, and mm-hmm. this article is about the other. It's like, can you imagine these people have gotten stricter about these terms? since the internet and the introduction of the smartphone can you believe that like what they're trying to do is maintain a traditional what we call a traditional way of life a traditional form of observance in a community and a faith tradition that says apartness is the one of the key qualities that may that not only maintains us but is our writ divine writ we are to be apart we are not to be together with you. We are to eat differently from you. We are to dress differently from you. We are to only marry our own kind. We are not to be like you. And this is what happens over time when people say this rigorously. And you know what? Aren't that cute? You know what I mean? Like um, the Amish are cute. Mennonites are kind of, they be, they're cute. They ride on little horses. They got triangles on their carts. So when they ride on the, on the road, you know, you should go around them because they're, they're driving a horse-drawn cart. They're really cute. The Satmar are not cute. Lubavitch are a little cute. The Satmar are not cute. They're, 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 they're a hard people. They can be a hard people to like. Lubavitch, they, by the way, the piece says only speak English in order to proselytize, which is ridiculous. I, I, I want to say something about the internet because I, I think it's so important. You know, 10 years ago um, at City Field, 10 years ago, I think almost to the day, it was in August or, or July, um, tens of thousands of Hasidim gathered for a rally uh, to sort of decry what they saw were the devastations of the internet. Uh, And they went out there uh, and said, you know, the internet is going to destroy the souls of the young. Uh, It's going to create mass depression. It's going to loosen social structures. It's going to lead to all these, you know, horrible phenomena. And at the time, I remember even, even, even me looking at it and being like, oh, come on, you people are ridiculous. This is just, you know, it's so backwards. Like, look at this. It's a good thing that could happen. They were right about every single thing that they said about this technology. Now, I think, listen, now, now to go to the other side, um, it stinks that they're not teaching English and math. I'm sorry. It does. I know kids. I've known kids who have come out of this world um, and are really very ill-prepared to live in the larger world if they choose to do so. And uh, and you can almost say that this uh, this is part of the effort to ensure that the community remains the community it is mm-hmm. by, by enforcing a certain type of incompetence, uh, you know, by making it harder to leave because you don't have the skills to live in, in the wider world. Now, this article quotes these apostates, you know, people who've left the faith who were like, I really struggled. Only now I have a nursing degree or now I have this or now. Yeah, they, they've struggled so much. They've actually left the community and gone on and, and, and made new lives for themselves. Why? Well, you know what? They went to like really hard schools. I mean, this is the point. These schools may, may stink at teaching you English language arts and, you know, ge- and I don't know, geometry or trigonometry or something like that. But um, like I say, this is a hard education. Now, Liel and I, 
I think your kids are still at but we are we our kids have shared a school, a Jewish day school. And it's not a Hasidic school, to put it mildly. And I will say this. It's like a really long day. When you get to wanting to teach Hebrew and Bible or Talmud or whatever, and have a fully secular curriculum that meets accreditation standards in New York State, the day is goes from 8 to 4 or 4.30. Like, it's not, you know, it is actually a real, which doesn't, which means you know that we're we're going this extra mile to add this time uh at at our at our at our day schools but um and these schools are are i think there's a grounds on which to say you are failing people by not instructing them properly in english this is like i feel like you know that was true of bilingual education that i hated bilingual education uh as a as a policy when it said you know teach in, in your original faith but you know also the article i just want to say one more thing the article has this incredibly dismissive quality to it that they teach in yiddish and that these people teach in yiddish they teach in yiddish for a very specific reason which i think is wrong-headed but um uh yiddish has been revived as the vulgate in 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 these schools and in israel by the way uh, because the idea is that hebrew is a sacred is a is a, is a sacred language it is the language in which you study it is God's language and that you vulgarize it and cheapen it by secularizing it. And so you, you, you speak in Yiddish and you teach in Yiddish and you do all that because you are, you are, you are misusing God's name and God's tongue by using it as the ordinary Vulgate. Now, I think that's an anti-Zionist sentiment. I'm very much opposed to it. I, you know, and I, they do it in Israel and I think it's really bad, but on the, on the other hand, like Yiddish was a dead language and there are now hundreds of thousands of people who know Yiddish again. Wh where's the New York Times support for that? I, you know, when, when Welsh people teach Welsh, I don't remember people saying this is really terrible that, you know, Welsh is being revived. Look, you know? I, uh, I, I taught, I've had the distinct pleasure of teaching uh, in several very, very good and very expensive universities for, for the better part of a decade and a half. Uh, I would say that failure to command the English language is a very real problem uh, among uh, most of the children that, that I've had uh, under my tutelage. Uh, but I would say this is a problem uh, that has a very easy solution. There is no reason uh, for the city and or state of New York not to spend a fraction uh, of, of what it would spend otherwise to start, you know, clinics that are voluntary to which any member of the community who feels the need um, to go and study English at any point in life uh, could absolutely do so. Uh, if these clinics fail to be utilized, uh, then it's a member of then it's a matter of choice uh, of what values uh, the community wants to have and what it chooses to invest its time and energy. And I don't think you could tell a citizen, hey, man, you know, you have to know X or Y or Z. I think that is a deeply problematic approach. I, one other thing I want to point out, which is that you have two different th this piece focuses on schools for boys, yeshivas for boys, 50,000 boys. There are schools for girls also, and one of the one of the qualities of the schools for girls, according to the girls that I know who have attended those schools, is that they are they are far they are actually weirdly practical places, because the boys are study are living in you know uh, you know cloud cuckoo land or Laputa. They they are sheerly intellectualized religious students 
living in a living apart, right? The girls take home ec. The girls study accounting. The girls in these communities are often the ones who have to go to work while the men study. And they, it's not like there aren't kids who are getting a full grounding in how to live in America. These girls are getting a grounding in how to live in America to be the practical spouses. Now, this is, again, this is a hard life because they're also having 10 children. And they're also, you know, like, I am not, I am not an admirer in one sense of the, particularly the way the Sotmer live. I'm not, and I, I wouldn't live that way myself. And I think they're retrogressive and I think they're, they can be ideologically disgusting, particularly about Israel, but they are not a dying, they are a thriving community, not a dying, they are a growing community, not a retracting community. And like Liel says, this piece has these anecdotes in it about you know people who have left and they find two people who are like got addicted to you know isn't it amazing drugs. john that and this entire like yeah. 17 billion word piece there's not a single attempt to sit down with a mother and say ask this question why do you send your kid to this school that's all yeah. i want to know no no attempts made yeah. why why bother well, they say no one would speak to them right that's their their claim is they couldn't get anybody to speak to them but yeah my, but then my, at the end of yeah. the piece they put a whistleblower like literally a little a little uh survey you can take that says yeah. you know if you have a horror story to share with us that that completely yeah. endorses our prior convictions send it now here's a form <laughs> we've made it easy yeah. it's ridiculous yeah I mean, I I just do think that so they mentioned these kids like, you know, and she got addicted to drugs and da, 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 and this is the real thing, which is Liel's great point that Liel makes in his piece that predicted this piece um, is uh, maybe we need to go study this community to find out why they're why they are so startlingly low when it comes to the 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 diseases of despair in the United States. Are you actually going to cite two anecdotal guys who left and had drug problems to explain why it is that everybody else is in a marriage, two-parent marriage, kids, very low levels of drug and alcohol abuse, very low and unbelievably low levels of crime? I mean, effectively no crime. There is no crime in Muncie. Now, yeah, so then you're going to say, well, you know, they beat their children or, you know, in these schools, they, you know, the the teachers wrap their children's knuckles or something like that. And again, really? I mean, is this, you, you really want to make the claim that, you know, there's a lot of hidden abuse here. Well, there's a lot of hidden abuse everywhere. This is all, all the central conceit of anti-Semitism is that Jews are doing things and behaving in ways behind closed doors that other people are too good or you know too moral or something like that to behave like and this is exactly the opposite but except for the slimy kind of uh you know inflection here which is that you know these people are living a nightmarish life that no they don't they they only speak yiddish again they live in america they don't only speak yiddish and look <clears throat> the the appeal at the end for horror stories that as, as Christine mentions means that this is this is the beginning of a campaign, right? This is there 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 this is the the Times is going to do one of their series things, mm-hmm. um, 
and they're going to awaken a counterattack. And and it and it's it's going to be, I think, quite contentious and and, and vicious here. They, they published this story just the in beginning. Yiddish. I mean, this is a yeah, regime yeah. change operation. <laughs> this is an info op. It's a yeah. mind, hearts and minds type of affair. Come on. Um, we need to say, as I said at the beginning, that this campaign against Hasidic schooling began not in the pages of the New York Times, but in the pages of the Jewish press of the liberal. Jewish press in New York, the New York Jewish Week and the Forward in particular. Um, and uh, their efforts will live in infamy because this, on the one hand, you can say, well, it's good. Like they needed to focus on this and alert the world to the fact that people in people in these schools are you know, being miseducated or maleducated. And you could make an argument for that. And that, you know, this whole line that you should, we shouldn't air our dirty laundry in public as Jews. But um, I'm sorry. Uh, the you may have a con- you, this is not a con- this is a false concern because if we're our brother's keeper, and therefore it's good that we expose our brother's you know tough love through tough love we expose the flaws in our brother so the brother can change. Um, then why why aren't all those people out doing street patrols in Borough Park? That's right. Why aren't they driving every night to Borough Park to do st- every day in Brooklyn? There is some kind of a hate attack against uh, visibly public Jewish people. Practically, I think there were four hundred attacks last year. I mean, so every day there is an attack on a Jew for being a Jew, uh, punching a you know a, a mug, whatever, and uh, you don't get to do one without the other. If you're gonna, if you're gonna be a tough love person, then you also have to be a somebody who says these people are my brothers and, you know, I'm much more worried about them getting beaten than I am that, you know, they're misallocating, they're voting in a way that misallocates resources to get, you know, to get money for school lunches. Amen, Sela. Leah Leibovitz, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody go to tabletmag.com. I think your piece is right there on the front page uh, uh, as it, and, 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 and will we'll remain there. We will keep an eye on this horrible um, unfolding story. And for Abe, Christine, and Noam John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.